This room is a lot bigger than the room I last taught in. So They always say you're supposed to project to the person in the back row, but <laughs> we don't have any of those folks. So I won't. I'll ignore you. <laughs> All right, so I don't have quite as refined a musical palette, uh, a, a, uh, sorry, a film palette as folks like Jackie and Thad and some of the rest of you in here. But one of the easiest, best movies ever made, I think we can all agree, is The Princess Bride, right? I mean, the deep meaning behind it, all of the theological implications. No, it's just a really good movie. The movie came out when I was 10 years old. Um, I didn't really know about it or become obsessed with it until a group of friends and I in high school and college became unhealthily obsessed with it. Um, to the point where, like probably many of you, I can now quote most of the movie along with it while it's playing, a uh, trick which my daughters love. And I can do the voices and everything, which my oldest daughter made me swear not to do tonight, so I will skip that valuable part of this lesson. But when, I, when we think about this movie, when I show that guy, Vizini, what comes to mind? Inconceivable, Right? So he keeps saying that throughout. If you've never seen the movie, I'll pray for you. And this guy keeps saying the word inconceivable throughout the movie. And eventually, Inigo Montoya, who has another line that he says throughout the movie, but at some point when, when Vizini is saying inconceivable over and over, Inigo Montoya looks at him and says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? Um, well, the word missional makes me think of that scene because missional is one of those words you hear people throwing around all the time, talking. They'll label anything with missional. If you, if you look in any Christian bookstore or listen to podcasts um, about Christian ministry or anything like that, you've got, you've got missional youth ministry. You've got missional worship. Uh, any church that has a mission statement, some people will call a missional church. You've got uh, missional outreach. You've got all kind. Missional is just kind of a, a, a wallpaper that's plastered over everything the church has always done. And whenever a word means everything, it kind of means nothing, right? So we've been talking over the past several weeks about the idea of mission as, as one of the key elements of who we want to be as a church, right? That's done a really good job of introducing us to, to the idea of mission in scripture and in theology and how it, how it plays into who we are. Um, but I think a lot of times when we hear the terms mission and missional, we might all be hearing different things. And so uh, I want to I spend some time helping us to have a, a, a hopefully a pretty practical idea of what we're talking about when we cast mission as a vision for who we are as a church. Okay, 50 years ago, for our parents and grandparents, when we, when we talked about mission, there was a pretty clear picture of what, what churches had in mind. It was usually geographical, geographical expansion of the Christian message from the West into what was considered more non-Christian areas, non-Christian parts of the world, right? It was more about taking, taking Christianity from home base, North America, into other parts of the world that were considered by them to be Non, the non-Christian world, okay? That's what it meant for them. But then what happened was in the, I guess, the late 90s, um, Christians started to notice the rise of postmodernism, and it scared us. 
It scared us to death. We started to think truth is permanently flying out the window with all the postmodern stuff that's, that's coming. The church is starting to lose its position of power in society. Pop culture starts to increasingly mock Christians in the church and Christianity. And, um, and people no longer place as much weight on the voice of the church on social issues and, and things like that. And so in a lot of, in a lot of ways, Christians and, and the church start, start to become fearful and skeptical and uh, kind of jaded and cynical about, about society around us. Because we're lose, we felt like we're losing our position of power and influence in the world, and we don't know how to exist when we're not home base for Christianity. Okay? So that's, that starts to happen, I guess, in the 90s, late 90s. And the people that came to the rescue, when the church is looking around and saying, how do we make sense of all of this? The people who kind of came to the rescue and gave us a new language and a new way to think about this were the missiologists. The ones who for years had studied different ways of, of bringing the gospel message to um, people who, to unreached people groups, right? So they had spent, and for, for, for years and years, it was all in this older, older idea of what mission is. It's all how to, how to make the gospel and evangelism seem appealing to people in foreign cultures across the seas, right? Well, they started to apply some of this thinking to the new landscape that the church found itself in, where um, there wasn't an assumed trust of the church. There wasn't an assumed authority given to the trust anymore. And they started to think, okay, how do, how do we do evangelism in this culture, a culture that was previously in some way Christian in a way that it's not now and now has rejected Christianity because it feels like that's like trying to sell a, a make and model of a car to somebody who's already bought that exact car and it turned out to be a lemon, right? That's kind of how it felt to us. We're trying to, here's a, here's a culture that has, at least it feels to us like they've rejected the Christian message and yet we're here trying to present them with the Christian message when they've already rejected it. So how, how do we do that? And so the missiologists came along and they started talking about doing things in a missional way. And that's when you started to see this term missional um, be used more and more frequently. Um, so basically what the missiologists were trying to convince the church of, or the, the, the leaders of the, the missional movement, if you will, is number one, North America is a mission field. Number two, God is the initiator of our mission activity. Mission, missions doesn't originate here and go elsewhere. Mission originates with God, and we're a part of that, okay? And then the third thing that we're trying to convince the church of is that the church is, by its very nature, a body of mission, a missional body that must adopt a missionary mindset, okay? So they started trying to trying to convince the church of these things. And it really, it really kind of started to transform the way churches think about our relationship to culture around us. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about mission. Uh, Mark Branson, um, he had a book called Starting Missional Churches, Life with God in the Neighborhood. And I like the way he summarized it. He says, if we accept that the West is a mission field, that's kind of the presumption upon which the whole missional movement was built. If we accept that the West is a mission field, then like the best of missionaries, we need to become reflective participants in the context. We need habits of listening, observing, participating, and discerning. When we say we want to be a missional church, that's what we have in mind. Um, I think Paul imagined this same reality in 1 Corinthians 9, and I love the way the, uh, the message renders this. Paul says, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all 
in order to reach a wide range of people. Whoops. Yeah, that's right. In order to reach, reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. And then I love this part. It says, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. That was Paul's vision of his mission, and that's the vision that we are trying to share as what we believe God is calling uh, Calm Church to be. Okay, so how do we get there? There's a lot of different directions I could go with this. When I first started kind of outlining where I wanted to go with this lesson, I had several additional points that I just had to chop off. So this is a much bigger discussion than what I'm going to cover here. But a few things to think about. Uh, first of all, God is a missionary God who sends a missionary church. That has already touched on a lot of this himself, but it's so fundamental to, it's, it's kind of the foundation that we have to have before we can actually live in a missional way that I want to I want to emphasize it one more time. God is ontologically missionary. In other words, by his very nature, God is on mission. God is a sending God. Okay, there's hundreds of examples of this throughout scripture. It's not, you don't have to proof text this one because it's everywhere. Um, from the sending of Abram in Genesis 12 all the way to the, the sending of the angel in, in Revelation 22. There is sending language throughout the Bible uh, connected to God. The Hebrew word, uh, in the Old Testament uh, for send is shalak. And that word is found uh, almost 3,800 times in the Old Testament. And two, uh, over 200 times, God is the subject of that, that verb. Okay, talking about God sent or God sends, right? It's throughout the Old Testament. God is constantly sending people, uh, entities, governments, nations. He's sending constantly um, to, uh, to accomplish his will. Okay, you get to the New Testament, you, hit, you see the same thing. Just in the book of John, um, the, the, the verb send or sent is found nearly 60 times in John alone, the Gospel of John. And the basic picture that John paints in his Gospel is the Father sends the Son, the Father and Son send the Spirit, the Father, Son, and Spirit send the church to us. They are all involved, uh, God in his three-person three identity in his relational reality, is sending constantly, okay? Um, so Jesus isn't just sent, but Jesus is sending us. John 20, uh, when Jesus, after Jesus uh, raises from the dead and he appears to his disciples in his resurrected body, he tells them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So we are a sent people. So the church... When we, when we become Christians, when we become a part of the church, we are becoming a part of the body of Christ, the body of people, the grouping of people that is connected to God in such an intimate way that we become his presence in the world, okay? So when the body is joined with God, we are joining with a missionary. We're joining with the missionary, Right? And so the church then, by its very nature, is also ontologically missionary. By its very nature, because of who we are and how God created the church to exist, we are a missionary body of people. Okay? It's not something that we can choose to do if we want. If we are the church, we are missionaries. 
Um, Brad Briscoe is a, is a leading thinker in kind of the missional movement. And he has said, it's not that God's church has a mission, it's that God's mission has a church. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, Brad Briscoe and uh, his writing partner, um, oh, let's see, yes, we'll go back to that in a second. His writing partner, Lance Ford, they, they have a book called Missional Essentials. Um, and we'll, we'll quote from it. And I relied on that book uh, a decent amount for this lesson just to give due credit. Um, but they talk about two prominent ways in which people see the church today. One of the ways that people look at the church is it's a place where certain religious things happen, right? So if I need certain rituals, if I need certain religious rites, I'll go to the church. If I need, to, if I need confession, if I need sacraments, if I need certain types of blessings and, and certain religious things, I go to the church to receive those things, right? Another way that a lot of people look at the church is as a vendor of religious goods and services, right? So we're consumers. We shop around for the right vendor to provide us the things that we're looking for, and that's, that's where we go. So the church is expected to provide really good music that lifts our spirits. The church is, provided, is expected to provide inspirational preaching. The church is expected to provide vibrant programs for youth and children. Nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, the thing that I'm trying to get you to think about is what, what's our starting point? What's the mentality that leads us into the church? The problem with both of those views, viewing the church as somewhere to go to receive religious uh, rights uh, and viewing the church as a vendor of religious goods and services, the problem with both of those is that both of those see the church as existing for the benefit of its members, Okay, in both of those scenarios, both of the prominent ways that people approach church is, to, is viewing the church as something that exists primarily for the benefit of its members. But I like what uh, William Temple said. He's the, he was an archbishop of the Church of England back in the early, 19th century, uh, early 20th century. He said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Right? It's the only society, society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. So I think our thinking has become uh, kind of turned on its head in the way we view things. Um, so, God is a missionary God who sends a missionary church. Second thing I want you to consider as we, as we think about being a missional people is we have to start thinking of our neighborhoods and our city and community as a mission field. Not just giving that lip service. We have to really start acting as though we're seeing our local context the way missionaries would. Okay? Everyone wants to live in a lovely neighborly neighborhood. You know, I think we, we could all share some common uh, visions of what ideal, an ideal neighborhood would be. You know, we see, we see pictures of, of people visiting with each other on the front porch, of kids playing in the yard together, helping each other out with with household tasks and just all these kinds of, kind of ideal scenarios. We all long for that kind of neighborliness in our immediate context. But how do we do that? We live in a context in America where the things that our culture values the most really work against that type of relationship with people. We, we value very highly the ideals of privacy, individualism, safety, security, all things that work against the idea of opening yourself up relationally to other people. Okay? So we have to work against that. And um, I keep jumping ahead further than I need to. So there's, a, there's an exercise. Here we go. 
There's an exercise in this book by Brad Briscoe and Lance Ford that I told you I was relying on pretty heavily. Uh, they call it the neighborhood grid. It's a really simple grid that you see there, but that center block here, and I'm going to warn you, this might hurt a little bit. That center block there is supposed to represent your house. Uh, I know you don't all live in neighborhoods. Some of you live out in the country, but just, just follow along with me for a second. There's principles here for everybody. That center block represents your house. So up above you would be the house across the street. To the left would be their next door neighbor and their and to the right would be their other next door neighbor. So you've got most people that live in neighborhoods have people around them in each of these houses. So let me ask, could you, if you had this grid in your hands, could you name the people that live in each of the houses around you? Only about 10% of people can name their neighbor, can name their neighbors. I'll admit, I can't. That's why I said this might hurt a little bit because it, it, it was a convicting thing for me to go through. Could you name all of your neighbors, even their first name? Now, let's take it a step further. Could you tell me something about each of your neighbors that you could only know by having conversations with them? I'm not talking about they take their trash out at six o'clock every Thursday night. Not that. Something that you can only know by talking with them. You know, they grew up in Kentucky. They speak three languages, those kinds of things. Could you do that with each of your neighbors? Only about 3% of people can do that with each of their neighbors. And then take it one step deeper. Could you tell me something about each of your neighbors that you could only know by having a deeper conversation with them? Things like, what are their goals? What are they, what are they striving for in life? Um, what tragedy has, tragedies have they experienced and been victorious over? Are they a believer? What's their, what's their faith background? Those kinds of things. Only about 1% of people can tell you anything of substance about each of their neighbors around them. So, if we are going to love our neighbors and if we are going to be missionaries in the context where God has placed us, we have to start by seeing the people around us. I'm not just talking about noticing them. I'm talking about seeing them the way Jesus saw the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10, if you know the story of the rich young ruler, a gentleman approaches Jesus and asks him what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says to him, it says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. He says, there's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. It all starts with Jesus looking at the man. Jesus looked at him. And that word for look in the Greek, it's a term that actually had its origins in astronomy. It's not talking about just noticing somebody or glancing at somebody. That's a word that entails looking at something to understand it, the way an astronomer would gaze at the stars in order to understand something about the world they live in, right? So when it says Jesus looked at the man, it's he, he looked at him with a concern. He looked at him with a, with a desire to know him. That's the type of... Uh, of looking at. That's the type of noticing that we need to have with our, with our neighbors, with our, uh, with our mission field. We have to look at something to notice it. So missional, a lot of times it's used as a kind of a fresh term for outreach and evangelism. You know, people will talk about the service projects their church do, does in town and they'll say, see, we're a missional church because we do service projects or things like that. Nothing wrong with doing service projects. We need to do those. We need to do more of those. But I like what Lance Ford says about this in this book. He says, missional doesn't visit the neighborhood. It moves into the neighborhood. 
To be missional isn't simply to evangelize, it's to do the hard work of an evangelist, getting to know those who need to hear the message, learning the language and the cultural setting. Missional, missional churches aren't necessarily churches that do lots of outreach events. Those programs and activities may emerge and they should. But what makes a missional church is that it's made up of people who are on missions in their individual lives, their neighborhoods, workplaces, and social places, and in their communal activity as a faith collective. So we have to start thinking differently. Individually, we have to stop thinking of our neighborhoods as merely where we live, a place that serves us as we go out and chase our dreams through career and through family and through all these other things. We have to stop thinking of our, of our neighborhoods that way. As a church, we have to stop thinking of our community and our city as merely a potential market for church growth. We've, uh, churches need to get away from that. We have to determine both individually and collectively, uh, we have to determine that we are going to own the responsibility for the welfare of our community, for the welfare of our neighborhoods. We are going to take ownership of making sure that the context where God has placed us as missionaries in his kingdom is, uh, has the welfare that it needs uh, to thrive and to experience life to its fullest. And that starts in your most immediate mission field. It starts in your most immediate mission field, which is the people that God has placed around you every single day. And for us as a church, it starts not overseas, and there's great things that we can continue to do overseas, but it starts first and foremost with the people that God has placed us in the midst of right now. So one of the most popular passages to turn to in missional conversations is Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah is prophesying, he's given God's message to a group of people who is exiled from their homeland. Okay? They're in a culture that's not their own. They're in a culture that doesn't value the same things they value, that doesn't speak the language they speak. And they're saying, how should we live amongst these people? Do we separate ourselves completely from them? Do we, uh, do we view them as the enemy? How do, how, do we, how do we address the fact that we're among people that don't see life the way we see it? And here's what God says. He says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says to all the captives, he has exiled uh, to Babylon from Jerusalem. He says, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens, eat the food they produce, marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, don't dwindle away. In verse seven, he says, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare, for its welfare, the city's welfare will determine your welfare. So we're not here to take from our community. We're here to make our community. And we need to start viewing ourselves in that way. We have to start asking the questions that a missionary would ask. So look around your street. Look at that neighborhood grid. Look at, look at the people that you're in the, most con, in the most proximity with and ask, how would a missionary live on my street? If somebody that I think of as a missionary were to move into this street and live in a house here, how would they live? What would she notice is missing there? Um, ask yourself, who are the poor, the marginalized? Who are the hurting around me? How would my neighborhood be different if God's kingdom came here as it, was, as it is in heaven? You know, we pray that. We just prayed that. Your kingdom come um, on earth as it is in heaven. How would my neighborhood be different if that happened here? 
What would good news be for my neighbors right here and right now? These are the types of questions missionaries ask before they go into the mission field. So those are the questions that we need to ask about the mission field that God has placed us in. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you're the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. When we are living missional lives, we don't have to tell people about the light that's within us. They will see it because we're shining it. Right? Your people in your neighborhood should see the light of life within you because you're interacting with them and you're in relationship with them. Okay? Third thing to consider as we think about being missional people, being a missional church. We need to think about third places. Third places. Um, so there was, a, there was a book written called The Great Good Place, uh, written by a man named Ray Oldenburg. He's an urban sociologist. He wrote a book called The Great Good Place. And he, he coined the idea of there's first places, there's second places, and there's third places that we all occupy. Um, and God, as Christians, we, we believe that God has placed us in each of these contexts to serve missional purposes. Uh, but let me back up a little bit before I get in and explain uh, the difference between all of those. When we think about place as Christians, there's a lot of different ideas that have floated through the church. So you go back to Gnosticism, which was a, an early, you know, first and second century heresy that the church had to fight against. Gnosticism basically said there's heaven, uh, which is full of good things and, and right things. And, and then there's earth. There's the world, which is full of bad things that are headed for destruction. And everything falls into one of those two categories. Basically. I'm oversimplifying it, but everything falls into those two categories. Um, there's the sacred and there's the secular. And the sacred, the sacred is good. We focus on that. We, we, we need to completely avoid the secular. And that divide, I think, has hurt the way we view the world and the way we think about place and the way we engage the world around us. It insulates us from a world that God loves, but that God is still working to redeem, okay? Wendell Berry, uh, Thad's favorite author, perhaps, um, he said, there are no unsacred places, but there are only sacred places and desecrated places. I love that. The world isn't divided into, into the things that we love and the things that we don't love, the things that we embrace and the things that we don't. The world is a place that God created out of his love as an expression of his love and of his glory. And our role as followers of Jesus is to take these desecrated places and bring holiness to them, bring goodness to them, bring things that are sacred back into them. That's what it means when Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ministers of reconciliation, we're ambassadors of reconciliation. That's what it means. We're reconciling two things that... Uh, that are at odds with one another, we find ways to bring them back together. So back to, back to Ray Oldenburg, the great good place. So he set, he set forth the idea of the first, second, and third places. Uh, so the first place, to oversimplify things, first place is where we live, second place is where we work, and the third place is where we play. I'm gonna focus a little bit just on that third one. The subtitle of this book, you probably can't read it there, uh, perhaps you can, uh, but the subtitle is probably the longest subtitle in the history of books. <laughs> it's cafes, coffee shops, community centers, beauty parlors, general stores, bars, hangouts, and how they get you through the day. That's what third places are. Okay? If you want to give a, a better definition, third places 
are public places on neutral ground where people can gather and interact. In contrast to first places, which is where you live, second places where you work. In contrast to those, third places allow people to put aside their concerns and simply enjoy their settings. Okay, that's what he calls a third place. Um, best example of that I can think of is Cheers, where everyone knows your name. All right, I gave you the top one. Um, who, who, who can name the others? Top, top right, that's Friends. What, what's, the name of the, what's the name of the establishment? Central Perk, right? That one's written up there on the windows. That's cheating. What about the bottom left? How, what's the name of the? Uh, McLaren's. McLaren's, all right. I don't want to be proud of you or, or, or not. But. And bottom right, of course, best of all, Say by the Bell. The max, yeah. So all of, these, all of these idealized pictures of relationships that you see in these, in these friend sitcoms, right? They all involve people gathering together in a common place where they're not working, they're not, they're, they're, they're not involved in, uh, in anything other than social interaction that's informal, right? The place where everybody knows, you, knows your name. The problem is there aren't very many of these places anymore. These places have... Have, have disappeared steadily since uh, the time after World War II. Because after World War II, soldiers all started coming back and you started to see subdivisions popping up where they were building a whole lot of houses, but they weren't building common places for people to gather. And eventually what happened is that that contributed to what sociologists call, uh, recognize as an epidemic of loneliness and isolation in our culture. In fact, what they've said is that most people in the U.S. are relationally impoverished. People don't have the kinds of relationships that enable them to be open and vulnerable and encouraged. But the thing is, this isn't how it's always been. People have always had that need, and maybe not everybody has been able to feed that need within their spirits. But it hasn't always been this way. Um, Robert Putnam uh, wrote a book. He's a, um, he's a political sci uh, scientist, and he wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And the title of that book he draws from the idea that over the past 20 years, you see that more people are going bowling, but far fewer people are involved in bowling leagues, which means more people are bowling alone. So he, from, that, from that statistic, he, he gets the title of his book, but he goes on to talk about how there's less participation in PTAs, less participation in groups like the Lions Club, in political organizations, religious organizations. All of these relational groupings of people have seen declines in participation. And he talks a lot about how after World War II, there was actually a rise. When these places started to disappear, you started to see a rise in um, in groups that would get together to play card games, you know, bridge clubs and things like that. He says in, by 1958, according to the most modest estimates, 35 million Americans, nearly a third of all adults, were bridge players. He tells us that many, millions of people were part of regular card clubs. So think about that for a second. That's an interesting statistic. But think about what that means. A few decades ago, nearly a third of everyone, uh, a third of families in this nation would spend one evening every week in the home of somebody else visiting and playing cards, visiting and playing games. That's, 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 a, that's a baffling statistic to me. That's a reality that I don't know. Today, most informal activities that we have involve no human interaction like that. It's Netflix and video games and uh, all kinds of stuff like that. But the fact is, we are created as relational beings by a relational God. And the idea of millions of people languishing relationally 
that should motivate us to want change. So what do we do to bring about that change? Um, first, uh, three, three things real quick before we end. Identify and engage third places. Think about where do people go to spend time with other people? Coffee shops, laundromats, beauty salons, barber shops, um, feed stores sometimes, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, Think about the places where people go to gather and spend time with others. And once you identify those places, engage them. As a missionary in this culture, become a regular at those places. Listen while you're there and learn where God is at work in that place and and ask God how you can join in with what he's already doing. Because that's the thing about missionaries. We're not bringing God to a place where he's not already, right? As missionaries in a culture, We're going to where God's already active and we're just simply trying to identify his activity and jump on board. So when you go to these third places, look for where God's at work and jump in with him. So here's a challenge for you this week. Pick one third place. Doesn't matter where. Pick one third place and go just spend an hour there. Take the headphones off, put the phone down, don't have your laptop, laptop up to distract you from everything around you. Just go spend an hour there and observe. What do you notice about the people in that place? How does that place bring life and vitality to the community? Where do you see and hear God working there and how can you join in that place? Sit there for an hour and think about those, those questions. And as you observe, as you listen, and as you watch, um, pray to God that he can show you some ways that you can be involved in his activity. Second thing, create environments for third places to flourish. So you've probably noticed that uh, for a while now, there's been a, there's been a tendency for a lot of uh, usually larger churches to be involved in starting coffee shops, libraries, bookstores, those kinds of things as a part of their church ministry. A lot of times churches will do it. Sometimes individual Christians will use their, their abilities in business to start something like that as well. That's a big part of what, this, of what this third place idea is. They're trying to create environments for third places to flourish. So those are good things for, for, for people to do. If you have interests in those things, go for it. That's missionary activity. But you don't have to go start a new business endeavor in order to create third place opportunities for people. Um, I heard a guy speaking one time and he talked about a group, of, a group of men in the Kansas City area that it kind of organically started where they would, uh, one of them one day just randomly decided he had a portable uh, fire pit uh, on wheels that he, he pulled out into his driveway in his house and just sat there with a cooler and some drinks next to it. And as people walked by on the, on the road, he'd invite them to sit down and just spend some time there. And kind of developed where he would do it, you know, once a week and sometimes even more often than that. And it got to the point where there was, in his neighborhood, it became known that there was a fire pit night at that guy's house. And they'd, a bunch of men would just sit around and, and be in relationship with one another, with their guard down. And, uh, and he created there on his driveway a third place for people to go. Okay, and then, and then another guy found out about this and another guy found out. And what I've been told is that there's an organization of Christian men there. I don't know if it's a church or, or some missional organization or what, but the way they gauge success isn't by how many people are showing up on Sunday morning, but okay, how many barbecue, uh, how, many, how, many, uh, how many fire pits do we have going right now? That's the way they gauge success and in their mission as Christians. So there's that. You can do a weekly cookout where neighbors bring a lawn chair and bring something to throw on your grill and you just sit in your, sit in your yard and, and, and create a third place for people. Doesn't, just use your imagination. Think of ways where you can create environments for third places to flourish. 
And then the third thing, support and defend third places. Since as Christians, we should understand the importance of place and the importance of having a place for people to gather in order to have relationships that bring vitality in life. Um, since we understand that, we need to be the ones who are taking the lead in supporting efforts to bring parks, libraries, sidewalks, and anything else that would enhance public life. We've got to stop thinking of it in terms of, in terms of partisanship and in terms of what, what our favorite politician's saying and in terms of all of these other things and start thinking of it the way missionaries think about these things. What's going to bring opportunities for life and relationship for the people that we are here to serve and we are here to share good news with? So support and defend third places. Some people estimate that we've lost half of our casual gathering places that existed at mid, at the mid-20th century. So over the past 50, 60, 65, 70 years, half of these third places have disappeared, which means there's far less opportunity for people to build relationship. And of course, those relationships for us are ones that we engage in with a purpose. So here's what I'll close with. We do this. We want to be missional, not as a church growth strategy or not as, a, not as a way to be on the cutting edge of anything. We want to be missional because we want to see people who are relationally disconnected come into life-giving relationships. And ultimately, we want to see them come into a, a relationship with the one who gives life ultimately. That's why we want to be this. And we also do this because we recognize that as fewer and fewer people are interested in church, as fewer and fewer people see relevance to what we're doing right now, the, the, the burden becomes more and more on us as missionary people of God to go into their settings and be the good news to them. That's what we mean when we say we want to be missional. Let's pray. God, we love you. Um, we love you because you came. We love you because you love us. And we love you because you give us purpose and you give us peace. And God, we know that part of the purpose that you've given us is to be something to the world around us that brings them life. And I pray that as you, as you work in our minds and in our spirits, as we try to be your hands and feet in our neighborhoods and in our city, as we try to be that, that you will give us inspiration, of, that you'll give us creativity, that you'll give us, um, give us resolve, that you'll give us the commitment to keep going even when it doesn't seem like we're, we're seeing results, that we will continue being the missionaries of your good news in this culture so that we can see people come to life in terms of their relationships with one another so that we can bring unity to a very, very broken uh, and sinful world and ultimately so that people can see the life that you offer through the love that we offer. God, go with us. Spirit, inspire us and give us peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.